We continue in John 20. I'm going to read verses 19 to 23. And on the evening of that day, on Easter evening, the first day of the week, so Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. When He had said this, He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Lord, this is Your Word. Chase away the many distractions, both those outside of us and those we brought with us. Open this Word to us this morning. Give the influence and the help of Your Holy Spirit that it would indeed be an awakening Word that You would stir us up. That You would stir us up to faith, to believe the promises contained here. That You would stir us up to a heart that longs for Your presence as You became present to them. That You would stir us up to hate our sins and love righteousness. That You would stir us up to celebrate with joy the rich forgiveness, not only that is ours, to share, but also that with which we share to others. Help us now to gain what You have for us in Christ's name. Amen. So Christ has risen. I'm proud of you. That's the truth that changes everything. Because it's not just an Easter truth that we celebrate once a year. It is our daily life. Christ is risen. I'll give you one more chance on that one. Christ is risen. Because if that's not true, you're a fool for being here. And frankly, I'm a fool for standing up here and trying to preach to you. Let's just go be atheists. But if it is true... By the way, it is that every promise of this book is verified and we have every reason for hope, for joy, and for confidence that the mission Christ has given us cannot fail. Because we are disciples of the risen Lord. And that's what I want us to see here this morning the immediate and continuing impact of Christ's resurrection on those who trust Him. The first thing we see in this passage is that the Lord Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, comes to make His presence known to His disciples. You see that in verse 19. On the evening of that day, uh, the first day of the week, so Sunday evening, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now remember, up to this point, none of these men have seen Jesus alive. 
Oh, they've heard rumors. Some of the women even claim to have seen angels who said that he was alive. Luke 24, 22, which is sort of the parallel passage, says, uh, one of them says, some women of our company amazed us. They went to the tomb very early in the morning and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. But that's just women, right? It's not what I say, that's what they would say back then. Um, in those days, they didn't value a woman's testimony. It's one of the miracles that the Bible records that women were the first to see him because if you were living in the first century and you want to make up a story and get the most bang for your buck, you wouldn't have women start being your first witnesses. But if that's how it happened historically and you're going to be truthful, then that's how you're going to write it. They didn't value the testimony of women. Women couldn't even testify in a court of law. And so the disciples don't believe them. You remember Peter and John run down to verify at the tomb what Mary said happened. And yes, it was empty. But they didn't see Him. Mary did, as we saw last week. And Mary went and told them that she did. But according to Mark 16.11, they didn't believe her. John had an inkling of what had happened, but even he didn't really get it yet. So here they are, all huddled together in a locked room, afraid that the authorities are coming for them next. And according to Luke, they're talking about these things. What do you think? I don't know. What about you? Could it be true? You see, these are not gullible men. They're not just itching to believe in a resurrection. In fact, they're resistant to the very idea. I mean, that kind of thing doesn't happen, does it? Well, no, not normally. But you throw Jesus into the mix and normal kind of goes out the window. But they will not believe until they see Him. And so Jesus, in an abundance of mercy, comes to them. And so look first at His miraculous presence among them in verse 1. And again, remember, the doors are locked. Yet somehow Jesus, and I love John's wording here, it pictures Him just sort of stepping into the room, just sort of moving suddenly into the room. All of a sudden, He is just there in their midst. And it's startling. Luke 24, 36 says, And they were talking about these things, and Jesus Himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened, for they thought they saw a spirit. Yeah, don't tell me you wouldn't have wet yourself just a little bit. But something about His resurrection body that is beyond our understanding enabled Him to appear to them at will. Not as a ghost or a spirit. I mean, that's what some of them thought, but very quickly He sets the record straight. Verse 39 of Luke 24, See, my hands and my feet, it's, it's me myself. Touch me and see. A spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. No, it is the Lord Himself. And He's, he's come among them. He's, he's come to make His presence known to His gathered disciples. And there is in that a kind of a pattern here that I think we at least ought to notice. The church is gathered in His name that first Sunday evening. They're speaking of Him. They're longing for Him as, frankly, we ought to be. 
when suddenly, what does Jesus do? Jesus makes His presence known to them. Isn't that pretty much what He promised? John 14.27 John 14.18 Let me get the right reference here. Jesus had said to them when He told them He was dying, He says, but I'm going to come to you. You're going to be sad. You're going to be upset. And for a little while, the world will see Me no more, but you will see Me. Because I live, you will live. I'm coming back to you. I'm going to come and show Myself to you. And by the way, isn't that what He still promises to do when we gather in His name week after week? Matthew 18.20, For where two or three are gathered in My name, there I am in your midst. Church, He is here. Whether you can see or perceive or not, He is among us. Jesus is still making His presence known. No, not physically. He has returned to the Father's side. But truly, He is among us. He is with us through His Spirit. He is with us in the symbols of the Lord's Supper that we just celebrated. Christ is still drawing near as we gather in His name. The early church even had a practice as they gathered each Sunday, they would start their time together crying out the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.22, Maranatha! Come, Lord, among us. Come, Lord. Church, we ought to anticipate the presence of Jesus among us every time we gather in His name. Do you understand that? We gather according to the promise of Christ that He will be among us and we believe His promise. Second, not only did they receive His miraculous presence among them, but they also heard His proclamation of peace to them. Look at His first words to them as He steps into the room. Verse 19, He says, Peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. Still a standard greeting among Jews today. You go to Israel, they're going to say to you, Shalom, peace to you. And yet there's an even greater significance to this beyond just the greeting. I mean, think about who this is. Think about who's in that room. Think about who these men are to whom Jesus has just spoken peace. These are the very men who just failed Him so miserably. They disbelieved Him. They abandoned Him when the soldiers came to arrest Him. Peter denied Him three times. And yet He speaks peace to them. That is not what they would have expected to happen. How do you deal with cowards and traitors? You miserable wretches! You failures! Oh, I warned you, Peter, I told you this would happen if you didn't pay attention, but now look at you all here, hiding in the dark, afraid of your own shadows. Oh, what disciples you turned out to be! Is that what he says? Is that what you think He is going to say to you because of your sins and failures? Now what does He say? Peace be to you. What medicine that would have been to their anxious souls in that moment. Not a word of condemnation. Oh, certainly they deserved it. Not a word of condemnation, but rather the sweet comfort of His peace. Again, just as He promised. 
John 14.27, again before His death, He had said to them, I'm leaving you, but I leave you with My peace. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you this peace you earn and work for and accomplish for yourselves. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Peace to you. Oh, weary one this morning, hear that. You who came in here this morning troubled by your sins and failures this week, hear that. You who have come in here wondering, how will Jesus receive me this morning? We'll hear it from His own lips. Peace be to you. And you, you wonder how He can do that. How can that be? We'll look at Him as He stands there. Look at His hands and His side that He directs them to look at. Look and see. Here is the proof of His love for His own. Peace be to you, He says. And then immediately, verse 20, He points them to His hands and His sides. And they are glad. He points them to His hands and side. Now, why does He do that? Why does He show them His wounds? Well, because here is the proof. First of all, here is the proof that it really is Him. He really is who He claims to be. No, He's not a ghost. He's not a spirit. He's not an imposter. He really is the crucified Lord Jesus back from the dead. It's Him. He is risen indeed. But second, it is the proof of His Love. It is the proof of His forgiveness. We have to ask the question, why does Jesus still bear these wounds? I mean, couldn't God have erased them? Couldn't God have simply healed these wounds? I mean, certainly. But Jesus bears them for our benefit. He bears them to assure us of His promised Peace. Do you see the connection here? It is by these wounds we are healed. It is these marks that testify to our forgiveness. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, speaking then as a prophecy, but He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by His wounds, we are healed. Oh, weary one, hear that this morning. Hear that. He bears these wounds in heaven even today as the solemn testimony that our debt is paid and we ourselves are redeemed. (laughs) I mean, that hand reaching out to comfort you this morning, bears the scars of the price He paid so that He could do it. I mean, seeing that as you've come here today, can you doubt His sincerity? Can you resist one who loves so freely and loves so completely and has accepted you fully based on what He has done, not waiting to see what you can do? You see, in a very real way, this peace to you is the companion to the it is finished He declared from the cross when He died. When He died, the work of our redemption was completed. The promise of peace was fully purchased. And now Jesus comes and brings it to you. Peace be to you. 
Isn't that exactly the point of Romans 5.1 where Paul says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, there's the it is finished on the cross. We now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is the peace to you. And Jesus has come into that room to deliver it to them personally. And church, He is still drawing near to deliver it to us personally through the Holy Spirit. Is it any wonder then that Paul begins his letters as he does? We, we even saw it this morning in 1 Thessalonians. Grace to you and peace from God the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh dear Christian, stand in that peace this morning. Believe the promise of Jesus as He draws near and rejoice. I love that in verse 20. They see Him. They realize who it is. They realize what He's done. And it says the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. What an understatement. They were glad. Just as He promised they would be. Again, John 16.22, He said, you're going to have sorrow now as they drag Me away and crucify Me, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And no one can. Even when they were beaten, whipped, lashed, rejected, hated, persecuted, no one could take their joy from this point forward. Beat them up and they go away from the beating saying, Hallelujah! We got to serve Jesus! There is a flowing fountain of joy for us in the presence of the risen Christ and you are invited to come bathe in that. So that's one reason we draw near to Him week after week like this because He has promised to meet us here. He has promised to bring His peace to us, to restore to us the joy of His presence as we draw near to Him by faith. Then, second, with that, Notice the risen Lord who brings us this peace now sends us out as disciples to continue His mission of peace. Verse 21, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent Me, even so I am sending you. Again, notice He emphasizes His peace. He doesn't chastise them for their failure. He commissions them to receive His peace and go share it with others. The very men who failed Him, I emphasize again, I mean, this, this is the testament of His power. You, you think this morning, He can't use you. I'll talk to Christians who say, well, He can't use me. I've done this, I've done that, I'm, I'm not worthy. Well, join the club. But He loves to use the unusable. He loves to use the broken, the weak, the faltering, the, 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 the failing like us so that He may show how powerful He is and how merciful He is. No, He didn't just leave you there. But He comes along even in your weakness and says, it's My strength. And again, this is so much more than just a greeting. Shalom, hello. This is a pronouncement of the new reality we live in. His peace is ours. We as believers, we live in it. The peace He purchased for us on the cross, it's ours. It's His gift to us. It's a gift that keeps on giving. It's a gift that now unites us together as believers. Ephesians 2.14, He Himself is our peace. He has made us all one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility that once Divided as His peace takes hold of us and unites us together in Him. And that is glorious. It is 
beautiful, but notice that's not all there is to it. Because the same peace that unites us together in Christ and gives us a joy to share in Christ, that same peace also sends us out together into the world to carry the news of this peace to others. Listen to him again. Verse 21, Jesus said to him again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So this peace isn't just ours to enjoy, it is also ours to share. So so step back just a second and think, Christ was sent. Okay, why was Christ sent? What What is the mission of Christ? Why did Christ come? And everyone here ought to understand, He came on a rescue mission. He came into this world full of sin, this world at war with God. Do you doubt that for a minute? That this world is at war with God? Sinful mankind hates God. Man in his sin hates God. Man and woman hate God because they want to be God. That's true of every one of us. That was true of you. Romans 5 says that we were enemies of God when Christ came to us. But Christ came to end our war and establish His peace by the sacrifice of Himself. Colossians 1.20 says that He reconciles all things to Himself, making peace by the blood of His cross. That was His mission to win our salvation, to establish the peace by which we can be redeemed. This is why the Father sent Him. Right? That famous passage, John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world as it deserved, but... Rather, that the world might be saved through Him. Christ was sent on a rescue mission to win salvation for those who believe. So the the sent one came to save, and now, Jesus says, the sent one sends us to declare that salvation so that others may hear and believe and join us in this salvation. Do you see the connection here? He did the winning of salvation for those who believe. We go share the truth of salvation that they might now believe. Here's why that's important. So we don't have a mission that is in any way disconnected from His. We don't have a separate mission that is like His. It's not a matter of looking and saying, what did Jesus do? Well, He did this, that, and the other thing. So I'm going to go out and do this, that, and the other thing. No, it didn't work that way. I'm not a Savior. I can't save anybody. I can't change anybody's life. I can't take away anybody's sin, my own, let alone anybody else's. I don't have a mission like His. My mission is an extension of His. We go share with them what Christ has done so that the peace He established at the cross might reach more and more people and nations and tribes and tongues. So, His mission is at the heart 
of what the church is. It's at the heart of the church. The, the sent one won salvation and sends us out to declare that salvation. And again, this is so important for us to see because church, understand as we gather here today, we have a mission. We have not gathered here for no purpose. We are gathered as God's people. And every week we meet Him here to be reminded of who He is and what He's done. To receive again His peace and to hear again the news that our sins are forgiven. Have you heard that this morning? Christian, have you heard that? Your sins are forgiven. We come, we hear that word, we rejoice in His presence because of that Word. We encourage each other with that Word. We teach our children that Word. And then we go out of here not because our work is done for the week, but because we are now sent to carry this message out of the work He has done. Amen. In fact, the wording here is very interesting. When Jesus talks about His sending, His own being sent... He does so in a form where there's a permanence about it. Um, The word means that Jesus was sent once and for all. That He was sent back then, but He still remains the sent one today. It wasn't that He was sent and it's done. He was sent and He's still that sent one. He, He is and always will be God's sent Son standing forever as the Savior of those who believe. That's Him. Once for all sent, still the sent one. But us, when He mentions our sending here, He does it in a form that emphasizes its continuity, its continuousness. He keeps on sending us. And so Jesus, who stands as the sent one from God, who completed His mission and purchased our peace once for all, now keeps sending us out week after week after week with the news of what He has done so that more and more people can receive the saving gospel. And so this mission of carrying the news to others and spreading the joy of His peace is at the heart of the church. And a church that doesn't embrace that mission in obedience to Christ has set itself in opposition to Christ. And and I really do want you to think about that. We as a church need to think about that, right? A church that doesn't see His mission as the mission He is sending us on has set itself in opposition to the Lord who sins. We serve the sent Son who is who is still a sending Savior. He makes us a sent people. And so the question is not, are we sent? Answer, yes. The question is, to whom are we sent? How are we being sent? Where is Christ sending me today? With whom shall I share this news of His peace? And everyone He puts me in front of, right? Because listen, He is worthy of that. He deserves to have every soul He died to save, and by the way, He will. And that brings us to the third thing this morning, and that is to see that the risen Christ then empowers His disciples to proclaim this message of the forgiveness of sins. Verse 22 and 23. And when He had said this, right, I'm sending you, 
He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So here's the good news. Jesus didn't just give us a mission and then leave it to us to go accomplish it. Because again, it's not our mission. It's His mission. And because it is His mission, He promises to go with us. Right? The Great Commission, Matthew records, Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. Oh Lord, how are we going to do that? Well, because behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you always. Wait a minute. How's that? Because He's about to ascend to the Father. He's leaving them. He's told them this. So how is He still with them? Well, by means of the promised Holy Spirit. You remember that, right? Back in John 14, 16-18, Jesus told them, I'm leaving you, but I will ask the Father. He'll send you another paraclete, another helper, another one to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. Then He says, and I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. How am I coming to you? Because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit to be with you. The way Jesus comes to us and empowers us and works through us is by means of the Holy Spirit who is now present with us. By the way, just notice here in this passage, I love to notice and mark in my Bible Trinity sightings. And of course we have one here. Verse 20, um, verse 21, Jesus is speaking. There's the Son. He says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. There's the Father. Verse 22, He then breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Jesus imparts His presence to them through the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 22 again. He breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What a scene. Now there are some writers who think that this was nothing more than a symbolic act. Jesus is sort of preparing them for the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost. And I think it is that. I think there's a symbolism here. But I I also think there is more to it than that. Because Jesus blows on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. And it looks to me that He is imparting something to them. And the key to understand exactly what it is He's doing here comes in this word, breathe. In verse 22, He breathed on them. This is not the normal word for breathe, the one that you would recognize, pneuma, uh, part of the pneuma word group. This is not that word. In fact, this is the only place in the New Testament this very rare word for to breathe shows up. And while it can mean breathe, that is one of its meanings, the more natural translation of this rare word is to blow into something like you would blow into a balloon. And so what's going on here? Well, this word is found nowhere else in the New Testament, but it is found a few places in the Old Testament, the Greek version, the Septuagint. Let me give you two of them that I think really help us see what's going on here. First is Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Genesis 2, verse 7 is when God creates um, man out of the dust. And it says, The Lord God formed the man uh, out of the dust of the ground 
and here's our word, breathed into his nostrils, blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God blew into Adam's nostrils and Adam's life began. Adam became a living being. God imparted life to him in that moment. That act of blowing brought life to Adam. And I think that's what we're supposed to see here. Christ blows life into His disciples, not physically, but spiritually. He brings them to life spiritually. He imparts something of the life of the Spirit to them as leaders of the church to prepare them for the fullness of life and power that will come upon the whole church when we get to Pentecost. And so, yeah, it is symbolic of what's coming, but there is also substance to it. We see the same thing again in the next passage, Ezekiel chapter 37 Beginning in verse 9, the same rare word is found here. That's the scene. If you remember, Ezekiel is standing in the valley full of dead, dry bones, which represented Israel in its spiritually dead condition. And God says to the prophet, Ezekiel 37, 9, Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, or it can also mean the spirit or the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and, here's our word, breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as He commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. That breath of God brings life to these dead bones and they become a living army. This is the beginning of a spiritual awakening. This is the beginning of life from the dead. A new nation belonging to God. A people alive to God. And do you see how that indeed pictures the church? This is what the church will be. And Christ is is imparting life to them. This is the beginning of that process. Life in the Spirit begins now, but it will explode in Acts 2 as He then sends the fullness of the Spirit upon all flesh, upon the whole of the church. I like the way Calvin puts it. He says, The Spirit was given to the apostles now in such a way that they were only sprinkled with His grace and not yet saturated with full power as they soon would be. But the new life of the church has begun, brought to Him, and this is the important thing, by the presence of the Spirit. And that is the same new life church we now partake of in fullness because the Holy Spirit has come, Pentecost has come, and we have His indwelling presence on a permanent basis. The reminder to us here is that the church is not a human organization that's just getting along by human means and organization. The church is a spiritual reality. We've been given life in God's Spirit. We are animated by His presence. He equips us to accomplish all that He commands us to do. And so church, we need, we need to hear Christ saying to us this morning, Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive Him. He's been given to you. Now I don't mean by that that receive Him for the first time. 
or some kind of second blessing as some would teach. This side of Pentecost, we have Him from conversion on. If you're a Christian, He lives within you now. He dwells among you. The New Testament's clear on that and we can always look at that at another time. But what I mean here is that we must receive His ministry to us. He has been given for this purpose. We must believe the promise of His empowering and equipping because He is doing that. We must rely on Him and the life He has given as we go out to carry on the mission Christ has given. And that brings us into this final thing for this morning. Our Spirit-empowered mission is what? To proclaim in His power the forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 23. Receive the Holy Spirit, He says, and then as a consequence of that, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, the language he uses here is important because if you're if you're not careful, you're just reading it on a blur. um, It can be a little bit confusing because at first glance it sounds like he's saying that we have it within ourselves to forgive or not forgive sins. That this is something that we ourselves do. But, But the emphasis here is not on us as the granters of forgiveness, that's God and it's always God, the emphasis is on us as the declarers of the forgiveness He has given. Um, It's in a form called the divine passive where the emphasis is like this. This stands forgiven by God as we proclaim it. And so if you forgive the sins of any, thereby proclaiming the Gospel, He means... They stand forgiven by God. And if you withhold that forgiveness by by not preaching the Gospel, then it stands withheld by God. Because it is by the preaching of the Gospel that this forgiveness of sins is carried out. It is by the preaching of the Gospel. If the Gospel is not preached, forgiveness is not granted. Think about that. Do you realize the power Christ has entrusted to His church beginning here? From now on, wherever the Gospel is preached, the forgiveness of sins is being offered freely to all who hear and believe. And the Holy Spirit's going to apply it. He's going to bring it about uh, according to God's plan and purpose. But, but the Gospel comes through the preaching. I mean, the forgiveness comes through the preaching of the Gospel. If we go out on His name and proclaim Christ, we impact the eternal destinies of men, women, boys, and girls because it is by the Gospel forgiveness comes. Because sin is the problem, right? Sin is the problem. Where sin exists, men, women, boys, and girls are barred from heaven. The wages of sin is death. Every sin is an affront to a holy God and worthy of His condemnation. Sin brings hell to all who sin, and that's all of us, and all who remain in that sin are without hope. And so sin must be forgiven for any to enter into God's presence. Christ died that forgiveness might go to all who believe. Which is why Paul asked that critical question In Romans 10.14, how then will they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
So church, we have a mission. We must declare to all what Christ has done. But it is the power of that message itself that God uses to unlock the gates of heaven or where that message is not proclaimed, leave them shut. Matthew 26 talks about the keys of the kingdom, specifically addressing Peter, but Peter is representing the church, is told by Jesus, I'm entrusting you to you the keys of, of the kingdom. And as, as, as the gospel is proclaimed, and as, as you, my disciples, proclaim, where sin is not forgiven, it, where, where there is no forgiveness. Uh, they remain in that. Where it is proclaimed, there they freely receive it. So he doesn't mean in that, that that we have within ourselves the arbitrary power to open and close the gates at will. But what he means is that the power of the gospel can only open those gates for others or leave them closed where it's not proclaimed. When the gospel is proclaimed, gates are being opened. When they are not proclaimed, gates remain shut. Where the church does not preach Christ, those gates are closed. Where Christ is proclaimed, those gates are being opened. And we are given that calling. We are given that privilege. We are given the privilege of seeing this gospel proclaimed broadly and powerfully as possible that through that gospel, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word about Christ, through that gospel, men, women, boys and girls may come to believe. Right? Not because we do the saving, but because God saves through this message. Romans 1.16 Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And so Luke 24.47 says to us, Repentance for the forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in His name to all nations. There's our calling. Because the only way any will hear and believe and be saved is through the proclamation of the Gospel. You say, well, God can do whatever He wants. Well, of course He can. But He has commanded us to do this and told us that this is the normal means He's going to use. Sharing of the Gospel, the proclaiming of Christ, the pointing to others, the peace that He has given, the peace that we enjoy, the peace that we rejoice in, is not ours to be hoarded and held on to for ourselves but to be shared freely with those around us. So church, take hold of this Gospel. Believe it for the good of your own soul and then proclaim it and share it with those around you knowing that it is the power of Christ that does this, not you. Knowing that the Holy Spirit equips us for this purpose and that He will use your faltering words to accomplish His perfect purposes. Amen. As you trust him, as you entrust yourself to him. Father, oh Father, the very day of Christ's resurrection, we are received such precious promises, such news of peace that is ours in Christ, such assurance that the sent one sends us in his power and uses our weakness to accomplish his mighty deeds. That the power of salvation is not in us, but in the message that we proclaim. And that in this message, there is the forgiveness of sins. God, I pray that every person in this room who has become aware of their sin 
would look to Christ and the promise that Christ died to lift this guilt and to provide the righteousness we must have to stand clean before God. And they would believe it. And they would trust in it. And that we as a body would then go from here to share it. Father, as the Gospel is shared this week with friends and co-workers and family members and prisoners and, 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 and people around, that You would plant the seeds, that You would water the seeds planted and You would bring the harvest that brings glory to You as the gates of heaven are open wide through the sharing of the Gospel of Christ. We pray in Your name. Amen.